Hey, all you cool cats and commies. I'm Caleb. I'm Zach. And this is In The Mood. Your working class podcast. All right, all right, all right. So we are back for another episode, and we have something special in store. We have one of our first ever interviews. I'm going to be interviewing one of my fellow co-workers, Berkhan Seiger. So Berkhan, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Uh, so, right, like you said, my name is Berkhan Seiger. Uh, we met... Uh, three, almost three years ago three now. Three years ago. Yeah. Uh, I had been teaching in public school for three years. And uh, I was uh, trying to find another job. I had just got done working at a middle school, which was a huge mistake. Uh, <laughs> definitely do not enjoy teaching preteens. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so I was looking for a job somewhere and ended up getting a job at Holy Family. Uh, that's where we ended up meeting. And it was it worked out really great because all the, I mean, worked out really great because all the other schools I worked at, you know, the way that we teach history, I was the only one in any of the history departments that I was in that taught history this way. Uh, and then so getting the Holy Family, uh, meeting you there, that was your first, that was your first teaching first, job. Yeah, first ever was job. your first year, yeah, teaching. And uh, you were very receptive to this way, this style of teaching. And so it was really great. Uh, to work with you and and uh, now it's almost been full, uh, three full years and uh, you know I feel like our department rocks. I feel like we set the bar and I forgot to mention in my lead in like this is what who I consider my mentor literally taught me everything I know you know like you mentioned took me from when I first came into teaching and I used to I told you the story before I used to sometimes sit outside of your class just to listen to how you teach and how you interact with the students because that's I saw how the students reacted to you. And that's the kind of reaction I wanted. So definitely, that's why I've been looking forward to this so much. But uh, definitely, it's I feel like we set the bar. Yeah. Now, you know, I may be a little biased, but uh, oh, but we do. Oh yeah, so it's all good. And yeah, no, uh, well, that's great. I'm glad. I mean, that's thank you. Oh uh, yeah, it's very flattering. Uh, but you definitely, uh, you definitely captured some of that because uh, hey, you've stolen some of my thunder. I don't get to be the cool history teacher anymore. That's something that I told you about. Uh, because like I mentioned, right, there's no, at the other schools I worked at, I was the only teacher, history teacher that taught this way. And so all the students, uh, you know, were, were excited to come to my class and learn in this way. And now when I get students, I'm like, all right, like, let me tell you about uh, all the corruption going on in our country. And let me tell you about like, you know, uh, let me give you this history from below and, and try and empower you. And they're like, yeah, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> like, we already know. Like, just, just. Give me the content. You don't have to tell me the approach. We're ready. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> it's like, well, crap. Okay. But it's good. I mean, it, you know, stealing a little bit of my thunder, it's not really, you know, if I was a selfish person, I guess it would matter more. But, you know, being a teacher, if you're a good teacher, you're not that, you shouldn't be that selfish, right? So it's just more exciting to me that these students get four years of that style of education instead of just one or two. And it's really great for them. I'm really happy. Definitely. And that's what I really enjoy, especially being the freshman teacher. I know in other years, I've absolutely dreaded it being the <laughs> freshman teacher. Yeah. But this year, this year's class has just been absolutely amazing. Because, you know, that very first day, what I like to tell them is, you know, take everything you've ever learned about history and completely wipe it out of your brain. Yeah. Because, you know, I feel like they've just been propagandized so much oh, yeah. into believing this false, happy-go-lucky you know, glossy, romanticized view of history, both mm -hmm. world and U.S. history. Mm -hmm. And they miss so much of the nuanced information that there is to know how we got to where we are today. 
Yeah, I mean, right, like history, history is fun because history is a collection of stories and people love stories. Uh, but the history that we were taught in high school was the Disney version of history. And uh, it's not like, although I found it very interesting because I love history, it became way more interesting uh, when I got away from that. Uh, you know, being so, so uh, Caleb mentioned my name earlier, Bearcon Seiger. It sounds like a funny name, right? Uh, my, so my dad is uh, Turkish. So he's an, is a Turkish immigrant. Uh, my mom, she's half Turkish, half American. She grew up on an Air Force base. Her dad was in the U.S. Air Force. Um, and although I loved history, learning about history, and when we came here, or when we, I was born here, but when, <laughs> when they came here, they didn't have, uh, you know, all that much money. Like, I make more money my first year teaching. And, you know, everyone knows teachers are underpaid. My first year teaching, I made more money than my mom had ever made in a year. Uh and, you know, my dad and mom split up when I was young. So there's a lot of just support for my mom. Although my dad uh, was did support us financially uh, from time to time. He's really good about that. But anyway, um, although I loved it, like, I, where was I in the story? It was it. So it, it was hard to, I mean, although I liked it, it was hard to see myself in it. And then when I started to learn, you know, more about history and read, read Howard Zinn in particular uh, and start to see, oh, okay, so there's like a working class element to this. And I can start to see me and like, this is really, all of a sudden it became way more fascinating. And I wanted to learn, it made me hungrier uh, for, for more of it. And that's exactly how I see our students. You know, they come into history and, you know, studies show that students are so disengaged with history classes because yeah. they can't see themselves in it because mm -hmm. history let's be honest, is written from an old white man's perspective. Mm -hmm. And how can you ask anybody else other than an old white elite man? They love that history. Right. But how can you ask anybody else to try to relate to that? Yeah. And we make history relatable to our students and they thrive in it and they oh, yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. And, you know, even I hear stories of my students sitting at home and talking about how they hear something in the news and they're like, oh, we learned about that. Actually, let's talk about how what really happened. The real history yeah. is what they call it. And that's what I love. It, yeah, like the this summer, um, what is that show? Watchmen mm -hmm. uh, and Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft Country. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was the Watchmen first that really like, you know, put this uh, on the national stage. They had an episode about the Tulsa race riots. Then all of a sudden, you know, all over Twitter and Facebook and whatever, all social media, people are like, oh, my God, did you know about this? I can't believe I've never learned about this. This is crazy. I'm just like screaming at my radio and my TV. I'm just like, I'm so upset because I, all I'm hearing is all these people talking about, I never learned about this in history class. Or, you know, how come my teacher didn't teach me this? How come I didn't learn about this at my school? I'm like, I teach this every year. Mm -hmm. Like, oh my God. And I know I'm not the only teacher who does. And so it's really frustrating to hear these people who are like, oh, I never learned this. But at the same time, like, yeah, okay, I, I didn't learn about it when I was in high school. Like, how many things do you know now that you didn't learn in high school? You didn't care to figure this out. And like, not obviously you, you didn't know to seek it out, but I don't know. Like you can't, it's, it's a pretty big event, like pretty big deal. At the same time, you know, we have literally the internet at our fingertips. Yeah. So it's like, I get to the point where I'm like, especially as an adult, do you have any reason not to know something? Or if you haven't heard about it, you have the ability. Oh yes. We always, we, this whole podcast is about drinking. Yeah. So. It's, feel free. It, yeah, is uh, 
it didn't really mute itself when I did it under the table. Well, what are you, where are you drinking today? And by the way, we always love to shout out the drinks. Oh, yeah. Great. Well, this is good because this is one of my favorite uh, local beers. Uh, the uh, Good People Muchacho. Okay. okay. Mexican lager. I really do love it a lot. Mexican lagers are some of my favorite beers. But uh, I was talking to somebody a couple, maybe two weeks ago about Muchacho. And uh, they were telling me how they didn't like it. Because because they like Mexican lagers, they didn't like Muchacho. That's uh, blasphemous right there. Well, you know, it's made by good people. And what does good people do? Like every time they make a beer, they're like, I don't know, let's just put a couple hops in there and let's see how it goes. So it is a little bit hoppier than that. Than your traditional Mexican lager, but I got you. I got you. Pretty good, though. I love it. Yeah, it's very awesome. Good. I'm about to try the Cahaba. What is it? The Cahaba log, Cahaba lager. Yeah, for the first time. So I'm pretty pumped about this. I mean, yeah, I think Cahaba. You know, uh, good people. All they do is make hoppy beers, and Cahaba. All they try and do is make the most drinkable beers possible. So I like their Cahaba Blonde, right? Like, mm-hmm. Probably the most popular beer in Birmingham. Oh yeah. Uh, but I mentioned I was down in uh, Mobile before right. I started. Yeah. Uh, so I went down to Fairhope Brewery and uh, had some of their beers that you can't buy up here. And really sad, they had one called the Cinco Uno, and it's a jalapeno lager. So it's not spicy, right? But it's got that, but it's got the flavor of a jalapeno in it. Oh, that is really cool. Right, and I love peppers, so uh, it is delicious. You have been famous for your peppers in, <laughs> oh, yeah. in, in, in yeah. any of our past. That's another thing we do at the school, which is a lot of fun. As uh, yeah, I really love that Hot Ones uh, uh, interview show on uh, mm-hmm. YouTube, and so just got and plus I just love hot sauce already, so I just get a whole bunch of hot sauces, and we'll do some hot sauce challenges at the school, and uh, the kids both love it and hate it. And see, that's just what gets them. Just it's that hook. Yeah. I always think about any time I approach class with a hook. Yeah, because that's how we get them engaged, and then they they remember that they remember that so much more than. Okay, what war happened in 1935, or what? You know, what? How many yeah. people died in the Battle of the Antietam, or something like that? Yeah. Again, right. Getting back to the idea that like it's important to see yourself in this history. So mm-hmm. we just got done covering the 1930s, and uh, part of that is we covered uh, Mexican repatriation, and uh, you know we have an increasing uh, Hispanic population at our school, and a lot of the Hispanic students in my class, it was pretty obvious that they were connecting to it. Uh, there was one student in particular, uh, I kept seeing her like nodding her head along and it was mm-hmm. like really anytime. And I don't know you've seen that before, right? Anytime you see a student who's like obviously engaged and nodding their head as you're going along, uh, it's just such a good feeling. Uh, that's what I thrive on, yeah, you know? And yeah. you know, my favorite thing is I see the snaps, they hold up and they start <laughs> snapping when I yeah. start telling, when I get on a good ranch or something, they're just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, oh, that's yeah, when you know no. you're, you're doing good. Yeah. Your rants are famous now. Because now this is finally the first time this year. This is the first time that I'm finally teaching your students. Right. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, they're like, "Oh, what's uh, you're doing one of those things that Mr. Mood does? The, his uh, what are those things called? Oh, his his rants." Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we would. We always started out at least once a week. Well, every morning I tried to find, especially last year when we were in person, mm-hmm. I would try to start the day off with like a four or five minute Trevor Noah clip. And they oh, love yeah. Trevor Noah. Yeah. And that would usually get us on a good discussion. Yeah. And, you know, at least once a week we have discussion day. Yeah. And it's mainly with my honors classes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, because, you know, they're always so they're, ahead. They're they, usually more engaged in those types of discussions. Exactly. And you know that they you can give them the uh, work and they can finish it in five, ten minutes. Yeah, right. We don't have to spend as much time doing right. work together. And they don't mind having homework because they would rather have the discussions in class. Right, right. And, you know, those 
20, 25, 30 minute discussions, but that's what they remember because they make oh, yeah. those connections. Oh yeah. That's how, I mean, that's really how I start almost all of my classes is with the discussion about what happened. You know, what's the most recent big news story to talk about. So, mm -hmm. you know, most recently we've been talking about the Atlanta shootings mm -hmm. and uh, which is, you know, an opportunity to talk about intersectionality, uh, which is really cool because, you know, we weren't going to cover intersectionality really uh, in our history class. If they ended up taking my sociology class, yeah, like we would spend a, <laughs> we would spend a, a, a lesson on that. But um, I mean, that's one of the fun things about teaching, right? I mean, like you get to you have a captive audience at least for an hour. They're forced to be there, right? So they have to listen to what you have, what, what you want to say. Uh, it's like why not make the best of it, you know? Yeah, and it's and my favorite part about it. One of my favorite parts. I, I feel like I'm going to say my favorite part for a lot of different things. But one of my favorite parts about it is uh, when the students feel like they're getting one over on you because they keep asking you questions about this topic that is not the lesson of the day. Mm -hmm. And they're like, Oh, we're going to be like, keep, keep us from getting to the lesson. I was like, well, like this is, we don't have to do the lesson for you to learn. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's the, they feel like they're, they're winning, but I still get to accomplish my goal. Oh yeah. How we do it. yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what I noticed, especially last year in person, they'd start like giggling a lot because mm -hmm. they just keep going. They go, well, what about this? Yeah. And what about that? Yeah. And let, you know, like at, at the end of the year, I told him, I was like, you think that you're getting me, yeah. you know, about getting me off on these rants and tangents. Yeah. But you remember every single thing that we talked about, don't you? Yeah. And they're engaged in the discussion, too. It's not just they're asking you questions and waiting for you to speak. And then like you're waiting for the next question. You know, like because I because mean, I've, cause I've uh, done the same thing, uh, especially more this year, because it's a lot easier with uh, with our different schedule because mm -hmm. of COVID. But I can. uh you know, sit outside your classroom and listen, because sometimes I'm after my classes over, I'm like ready to go into your room and talk to you. And you're mm -hmm. still on Zoom, even though class was over five, 10 minutes ago, you're still talking. Uh, but yeah, like listening to that. And it's, it's, it's really good. They're, they're especially, man, I don't know, I guess maybe it's just like these younger kids, they seem to be a lot more engaged. Uh, I'm having a tough time with the seniors, man. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a struggle. It's like you have these great discussions. Yeah. And what I love is just I, I like toss like a little bomb in there yeah and they start out asking me a question and i go well actually what do you think first off yeah right. and then somebody else they'll say something then somebody else go well no i don't i think it's this and then yeah. no i think it's that and then they're leading the discussion well yeah well, you know student-led discussions you know because right. that's, yeah. that's the yeah. exemplar lesson exactly <laughs> that's what you're trying to do is actually yeah because you have some teachable moments there because we were talking about you know, again i said we like to start off class with just like whatever topical news story and so we were talking about the COVID relief bill and uh, this is one of my senior classes, and I had uh, a student say, oh, like, so this is why gas prices have gone up, you know, because they have to pay for this bill, and this is why gas prices go up. And so, you know, that's, a, all right, great. That's not true. And let's talk about why that's not true. And let's talk about the gas tax and how that's separate. And then we get to talk about OPEC, mm -hmm. and we get to talk about uh, competition with natural gas. Uh, so it has nothing to do with what we're talking about in the lesson. But now that student and the rest of the class has a better understanding uh, about that part of the world, uh, and, which is great. Cause now next time they have a discussion, they don't have to say something that's, that's false. And if we have to cover our ass, you know, then right there is a standard that we have met being able to make real world connections <laughs> yeah, to historical events, OPEC yeah. well, and all of that. So yeah, right there. I think that's, that's, that's also uh, one of the perks of uh, having such a strong department is that uh, administration doesn't really, they don't really, they don't really put too much thought into what we're doing. They're just like, oh, yeah, no, they're great. 
Oh, I they know that we're going to get everything covered. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, I heard you talking about this. It sounded really interesting. It sounds like you're doing a great job. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really nice to have, uh, to have, we have less oversight because of the trust. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's not like less oversight because, because of, uh, they don't care. Or, or yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. It's crazy. It's almost like if you let, te- if you, if people trust teachers to do their jobs in what style fits them the best, that's when you see the highest levels of student engagement. I don't know. It's crazy. It is weird, but also that does like the caveat there is that you have to hire good teachers. Right. Right. <laughs> of course. You know. And, uh, you know, we could always improve. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, to say the least. Um, cause then you have other teachers that, you know, just show up and yeah. you know, talk about yeah. anti-vaxxing, but you know, it's, 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 it's it is yeah, what it is. Yeah, but, weird. I was actually yeah. talking to one of the seniors. They were taking the photos, mm-hmm. senior pictures the other day. And uh, I was talking to one of them and she just, uh, I was asking about her other teachers just to, you know, get a feel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she did a good job uh, lying about, about uh, one of the teachers. And uh, I was just like, wow, uh, well, this is the first time I've ever heard this opinion of, of this person before. So, like, okay, well, honestly, that's really good to hear. Like, I'm happy to hear that. And then uh, she followed up with, oh, no, like that was, that was sarcasm. <laughs> I was like, oh. Huh. Okay. All right. Okay. That actually tracks. All right. <laughs> What's funny, it's it's hilarious to me is I met up with a couple of students that graduated last year mm-hmm. and you hear their real, and I, they were talking, they're like, oh yeah, this teacher was really great. And you could tell that they're all kind of looking at each other like mm-hmm. side-eyed. Yeah. And I said, okay, so you're graduated and I don't have my teacher badge on right now. Yeah. So t- quit giving me bullshit. Like, tell me what yeah. exactly yeah, yeah. y'all think. And they're like, okay, well, really? Yeah. I mean, that's honestly something that I'm really interested in doing is having teacher evaluations. Like we, mm-hmm. they do that in college, right? In mm-hmm. college, you do professor evaluations at the end of the course. I don't understand why we can't do the same thing. I feel like it would be good for both the students, give them some, uh, some, you know, uh, buy-in some investment mm-hmm. here. And also it would be good for us and good for the faculty, uh, good for the administration, uh, to have this information. Oh, yeah. uh, because like, you know, if you want to figure out if your teachers are good or not, all you gotta do is ask the students, the students know what's up. Cause you can go in there and observe and like, if you're in the room, they're going to do the best job that they can. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're not getting a true sample. And even if the students quote, quote, don't like the teacher, like for instance, if there's a math teacher that they quote, quote, don't like, they're mm-hmm. still learning. You can tell if they're learning or not, but mm-hmm. the, to them, it's like, Oh, well that teacher's not fun, but Oh, are you, well, what have you learned about? Well, that, and if they can list off the things that they've yeah, learned, it's like, right. Okay, the teacher just is yeah, passionate about math, what they're teaching. Yeah, you said math teacher, so I can. I, I think I know who you're talking about here. Well, I'm Does, just meaning my my experience with math. your experience. Well, yeah. I'm saying like because we have a math teacher who like may not be the most fun teacher, mm-hmm. but does a hell of a job, mm-hmm. and like and those students end up respecting that person at the end of the year, even though they yeah. might not they might not like how the classes are run, mm-hmm. but uh, but at the end of the at the end of the year, you know, they know everything that they need to know, if not more. I compare it to, I know who exactly you're talking about. I compare it to like the karate kid. Yeah. You know, Mr. Miyagi, they can't stand him. And then at the end, they're like, okay, I respect him. Yeah. Because they had to do, they had to bust their butt all year long. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden when they take their first uh, math class in college, they're like, like, oh, no, I I got this. Mm -hmm. I understand exactly what's going on. Yeah. That's that's some of the stuff that's a little frustrating. Actually, one of the things, one of my most, one one of my favorite criticisms I ever got from my class, of my class was uh, one student said, uh, I think I've told you this before. I was like, I thought this was supposed to be a history class. You know, this feels like an English class. They're just doing 
just reading and writing <laughs> all the time. And I'm like, well, well, what's the difference? Like in English class, you read fiction, and in my class, you read nonfiction. I don't understand. What right. did you think was going to be different? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. But it's we crazy. do have, just shout out, Holy Family, we do have, uh, of all the Crystal Ray schools, uh, we have the most growth from ninth to 11th grade on uh, reading and writing portions of the SAT. Well, there we go. So maybe we're doing something right. Must be doing something right. I mean, it's almost like we have the statistics to back it up. I don't know. Uh, you know, maybe something like that. What are statistics, though? But I guess leading into what we were going to focus on today, we're talking about presidential legacies and kind of going back to how we approach um, in the socialist, I mean, social studies department, excuse me, sorry, <laughs> sorry, the social studies department. I don't know how that happened, but um, we approach our teaching, you know, with this alternative view of history that is what we call the truth, I say, but, you know, we go below the glossy surface. Right. We actually give context to teachers mm -hmm. or to teachers to presidents right we give context to events mm -hmm. so you know how exactly would you, in your mind would you determine a legacy of a president yeah so it's really tough honestly like presidents are really hard to gauge because uh you know most of us have never been president right mm -hmm. and uh and i try and give my students this perspective because yeah like sometimes like when we talk about presidents, like you can pick out any president, literally any president, you can pick out anyone and find some serious fault, like not not just a couple mistakes here and there, like some serious uh, faults that are just like can be just egregious. But at the same time, you got to think about the level of responsibility that person has. So, right, for example, just going with a recent president, Barack Obama, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm just about to mention that. Yeah. yeah so he, uh, you know with the drone program drop more bombs in the middle east than anybody ever right uh and that's awful like you know i remember i watched a ted talk back during his presidency and it was this this uh young boy who was growing up somewhere in the middle east and it was just it was so sad and depressing he said every day i pray for cloudy skies because the drones can't see mm -hmm. when it's cloudy and like that's fucked up our president has little children praying for cloudy skies so the fucking you know drones can't drop bombs that's shitty but right to be you, fair and balanced right you gotta think about <laughs> you gotta again right it's it's a tough position to be in so let's say let's say the u.s it becomes a pacifist nation right and like you know up to like for me and my morals like yes let's do it but what is that going to do? Does that mean that Russia and China are going to be like, all right, we'll take the U.S.'s lead and we will not try and become the world's superpower? Of course not. Like, all it's going to do is create a vacuum. Like, someone's going to be the world's number one superpower. Do you want it to be Russia? Do you want it to be China? Fuck no. Do you want it to be us? Not really. But given the other choices, I guess that's what we have to do. And so, like, that's the that's the tough thing about evaluating presidents, uh, is that like they're gonna make up, they're gonna make some really shitty decisions that you feel like are just uh, morally incomprehensible. But what was the alternative? And but at the same time, like we're, what we're gonna talk about today is just some real shitty stuff that they didn't have to do. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the one that I love the most is you know, typically from the more conservative people when you have this discussion, they're like, well, you got to think about it. it was a different time then. Oh, fuck that. Exactly. Because, for instance, the main thing we're going to talk about with 
Washington, our first president, is slavery. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's not like back then slavery was viewed as a great thing. Right. You know, it still was morally wrong right. to think that you had the right to own another human okay. being. Yeah. That, that doesn't change. It's not like you couldn't find someone who thought slavery was bad. Right. right. It's not. And you did, and it, and, it could, and you would easily find a white person who's like, oh, you know what? Slavery seems kind of messed up. Exactly. Yeah. And then they try to, you know, gloss it over with, well, they were against slavery at heart, but every single action that they did protected and, you know, codified slavery well, in the Constitution. And like, what's that famous quote from Martin Luther King? I'm not going to get it exactly right, but something like, you know, it's not, it's not the racist person you have to worry about, right? It's, it's, uh, it's the, um, the white liberal yes the white liberal exactly the one who who in their heart might believe it's wrong but will remain silent and will mm-hmm. just go along with the status quo like yeah what are you going to do convince a slave owner that slavery is bad like that's not going to work right mm-hmm. but like there are a lot of other people that could be they're probably already there they're closer to that opinion and all they need is a little nudge to be mobilized in some way right again going back to well not again we're not going back to this but i, I mentioned howard zinn earlier and that's who informs a lot of uh, how we teach. And Howard's in there. Amazing. Uh, love uh, all the, the, you know, the, the style of history that, that he sparked and uh, all the writers, uh, historians that, that came after him that wrote in his way. And, and we're also, you know, products of, of his teaching as well. Exactly. And so are our students. Uh, but, um, uh, ooh, forgot my point there. No, just go in, <laughs> no, just go in with how he approaches it. You know, it's, from that bottom up perspective. Yeah. And it's that, you know, I, what is the quote that he had? I'll oh, that's what I was trying to uh, say. Yeah. Yeah, you can't stay neutral on a moving train. Exactly. That's what I was trying to get at. Right. So like, yeah, it's, you can't stay neutral, right? Like, okay. Yeah. Slavery was a thing. So what is, uh, do we apply that to other stuff? Like slavery is the worst. I don't understand why people want to try and figure out apologies for that. So, okay, let's go with something that's less bad but still awful what about jim crow right like mm-hmm. oh it was a different time and like where's that argument for jim crow you know like you know it was whatever people supported it whatever. like fuck that right like slavery was obviously worse than jim crow but like i don't hear that argument with jim crow i only hear that argument with slavery. Mm-hmm. and this is what i love talking to conservatives that you know were apologists for it and they like truly in their hearts believe it. And then I I, I take the religious angle with them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, I didn't believe that back then and all that. And I'm like, well, you know, when you get to heaven, there's not going to be a segregated heaven. There's not going to be a whites only heaven and a blacks only heaven. Yeah. So if it's not okay in heaven, why would it be okay here? You yeah. know, why, why yeah. is it, you know, do you truly believe that it's truly okay well, to have segregated yeah. areas i mean doesn't it say love thy neighbor not love thy neighbor asterisk check the bottom of the page only if there's some your same color right like like what the fuck yeah i mean the incompatibility of religion and oppression uh, is pretty fucking obvious but <laughs> even though it's obviously incompatible people find incredible ways to rationalize it and fit it to their own narratives yeah and speaking of fitting to their own narratives, you know, we're talking about one of the big examples that I love using about this herification yeah. that we talked about at presidents is, you know, I tell my students, you know, like this year when I teach sophomore history, I said, you know, Washington and Jefferson, they were slave owners and they and like their eyes just get about the size of plates and they're mind blown about this. Yeah. And they're like, how is that possible? But that happened, you know, all they know about Washington is, you know, he, the cherry tree. The cherry yeah, tree. he chopped around the cherry and tree. And he had wooden teeth because right. let's not, not talk about his 
teeth of slaves that he had in his mouth. Right. I was about to say, how do you think, <laughs> yes, how do you think he got those teeth? But, well, they weren't wooden. Yeah. So it's just like how watered down history has become. It's that Disney version of history I'm telling you, though, man. Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's, it's gross. And even subliminally, these things that have been propagandized in students' minds, mm -hmm. you know, and then especially once we start reading Howard Zinn and these alternative, what's considered alternative, but really, you know. Yeah, that's so frustrating. Alternative. Mm -hmm. Alternative, why? Because like it's because it includes people who are not a part of the elite, wealthy, ruling class, like whatever. I mean, you know, that's the other thing about teaching this style of history, this bottom up version of history, right? This. And, and I'll try and stay on topic with this heroification, mm -hmm. right? Um, so one of my favorite ways to explain this to my students is about Abraham Lincoln. Like Abraham Lincoln did not run on a campaign of ending slavery. Abraham Lincoln, mm -hmm. although he thought slavery was wrong, still believed that black people were inferior. Like he was still a white supremacist uh, in that way and believed that like we could live, we could cohabitate, right? And he uh, even wanted animation. to send them off to Madagascar or Liberia. Oh, that was yeah, him? He was part, uh, he, was, he I, thought one of the best well, ways... Well, I know Monroe did... Uh, I don't know if Monroe came before or after Lincoln. Uh, before Lincoln. He was okay. in 1820. Lincoln oh, said... Oh, so it was already a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Lincoln thought that... Well, once they were emancipated, right. one of the ideas that he had was sending all of them after the end of the war to Liberia. Right. Yeah. And so it's just... It's mind-blowing. Right. So this heroification of, like, we had to wait around for this great man... And not to say Lincoln wasn't great, but like, the, but the heroification problem. Wait around for this great man to come around to free the slaves. Yeah. So uh, the idea that Lincoln freed the slaves, the problem with that narrative is that it it just washes out all of the uh, regular people that were a part of that movement. Lincoln was president after there was years and years, decades of agitation against slavery. So the problem with this heroification uh, in history is that, okay, we have to wait around for a great man to assume a position of power and authority to make a change that's good for the country. Mm -hmm. But he, again, he didn't run on a platform of ending slavery. He himself was a white supremacist and that he didn't think that, you know, black people were on equal standing with white people. Uh, and it was, and you know, the South was so afraid that under his presidency, uh, slavery was going to be abolished. Why? Because of what he said? No, because there was a social movement that obviously had reached the, uh, the tipping point. And it he was president when we reached the tipping point. It could have been anybody, uh, but it was Lincoln. And so Lincoln gets that, that legacy. But, you know, that sucks for history students, because why would I think as this regular citizen, this regular person who does not have power or authority, who comes from a working class background, who might be a person of color, who might uh, be an immigrant or come from an immigrant family, why would I think I could affect change like that? Right. But learning that, no, it wasn't Lincoln. It was that Lincoln was in the position of authority when the movement hit that breaking point. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, it completely just diminishes, like you mentioned, like diminishes Nat Turner mm -hmm. and, you know, normal everyday people, an illiterate slave who was able to lead a movement that was one of considered one of the opening shots, quote, quote, of the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, you know, it you just completely lose the whole uh, nonviolent versus violent means of overthrowing slavery. 
-hmm. There was a huge disconnect in the abolitionist movement over that. Right. Uh, between who was it? Um, John Brown. Yeah. Well, John Brown, who just finally said, you know what, fuck this. We're going to, yeah. you know, we're slitting throats. <laughs> and, you know, he literally, that was, yeah. in my opinion, one of the opening shots of the Civil War. Oh, for sure. Because it's like, oh, people are go well, like, they're going to kill slave owners over this. Yeah. And like, yeah. you know, that really saw they and they saw, wow, a white man also is willing to die to yeah. help end slavery. So that like sealed the deal, essentially, in many yeah. ways for the South. Absolutely. They saw that they lost their, you know, they lost right. the white solidarity. Right. Once so. white people were like, wait a minute, we don't like this either. Well, that's the other thing, too, is uh, this other problem with heroification is that it can, you know, I mentioned we mentioned earlier, right, the problem of the white liberal. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, the problem with heroification is that it can blind. Uh, it can blind people who might be a part of the oppressor group, but not an oppressor. It might blind them to think like to, to support the status quo. I mean, what the fuck is the white sharecropper benefiting from slavery? If anything, honestly, the white sharecropper is hurt is is being hurt by slavery. Why would I hire you to work my land when I can buy a slave and have them work for free after purchase? Like that doesn't make any sense, right? So. Yeah, the other, you know, the other problem with this heroification is 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 uh, kind of, I don't want to say brainwashing because it sounds a little intense, but it, in many ways it is though. But yeah, I, mean, I think mean, about it. Right. It teaches people to be docile, essentially. It's, yeah, yeah. I mean, right, you know, if you uplift, if you help uh, it, for the for the poor Southern white person, if you uplift black people uh, out of slavery and, and in a position where they can take care of themselves. Well, what do you think your life's going to be like mm -hmm. if we that's the thing right and that's one of my favorite things about when i teach sociology and we talk about like black feminism like well if we uplift you know black women how do you think it's going to be for white women like are we ever going to like make sure that like they're not going to keep pace right like they're always going to be ahead so if we help out black people maybe white people will be better off and hopefully we get to a point where you know it's just equal across the board right equitable and equal but you know let's operate in reality <laughs> right and it's it's insane how willingly people are just to just look completely away from what's going on because that's how they've just been i guess in it's been inbred in them yeah uh and it all and in my opinion it goes back to bacon's rebellion that's mm -hmm. where we first saw this issue of race become you know a tool to divide people in this country yeah and then we're going way back in time but yeah, 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 it, yeah. it's well crazy. that's something that you and i both teach our students because mm -hmm. Because now I mentioned earlier, right, that now I'm finally teaching your students, like they're making this, they're making connections to the content in my class from stuff mm -hmm. they learned in your class. Because they said things like, oh, this is like what Mr. Mood said about divide and conquer. Yeah. And like, oh, it's funny how this theme keeps popping up. Crazy. Like people are using tools like race to divide people up when it's really a class issue. Isn't right. Crazy? Oh, right. Like if we like exactly. Hey, don't look at me. Don't look at the wealthy ruling elite class. Like. Get mad at the immigrant. Get mad at the at the black community. They're the ones holding you back, not the one who's skimming as much as I possibly can off the top. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it, oh, yeah, it's it's frustrating. It's crazy how that happens. Crazy. Yeah. But speaking of wealthy elites, um, mm -hmm. the first person that I chose, we're going to cover, I think, what four, five presidents. Yeah, I guess we'll overall? see what the time. How, how many? How many? We, yeah, how many <laughs> we get to? Yeah. But the first one I, I really went into was, you know, our first president, the founding, the father of our country, George Washington. You know, he was president from 1789 to 1797. He also was the leader of the military, like the first, I guess, what, 
commander-in-chief in many ways yeah, of the well, military I mean, during the was, Revolutionary War. He was before. the general. Yeah. <laughs> he was the top general and then just easily became president. Yeah. And just, you know, how he is considered the greatest president of all time because he set the stage, you know, for how things are supposed to be going forward. Which is funny because he's like the, the least political of all the presidents. Right. Yeah. And that's what's crazy is, you know, he, like you said, he was tried to be the least political. He, you know, was offered to run a third time. But yeah. He said he didn't want to. Well, that's part of his legacy, mm-hmm. right? That was really, that that is pretty admirable, that mm-hmm. part of his legacy. Right. And I think because he wasn't a politician, I mean, he knew that. That, and this is something that other presidents lack because of hubris, I think, for the most part. Uh, it seems that Donald Trump did it, not out of hubris, but out of, uh, uh, you know, inability to uh, <laughs> to become a delegator, mm-hmm. right? Like, Washington knew, knew that he didn't know how to run a nation. So, I mean, look at his cabinet, right? He had Hamilton and Jefferson in his cabinet, right? Like, he had some of, uh, I mean, a lot of the founding fathers... So, you know, some of the brightest political minds, the most tapped in people at the time, helping him run uh, the government. Now, Trump did it for Trump also did that. Maybe, you know, not the top political minds, but he uh, but he delegated because he didn't because he couldn't do it. Right. And at the same time, I mean, Trump's cabinet and Washington's were pretty similar in one way. They were both wealthy, wealthy aristocrats. Yeah. Like complete like Washington was the wealthiest person in the nation. And do you know how he got his wealth? Uh, let me guess, was it uh, slavery? Land speculation, actually. <laughs> so during um, the French and Indian War, when he was a general in the British Army, yeah. he was awarded, quote, quote, awarded land by the British for fighting in that war, which was in the uh, Ohio River Valley, Virginia, all that kind of stuff. It's really easy to pay people in, in property you don't own. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And so he was paid and rewarded all that money along the Ohio River that was illegally taken from the Ottawa nation. Yeah. And, you know, even then, he bought even more shares in this thing called the Mississippi Company. And that was close to two and a half million acres of land that he stole from the Ottawa people. And that's kind of sound it sounded like. It's like, (laughs) but um, that's how he made his fortune. And then he went on to be a slave trader as well. During that time. Yeah. So it's like, you know, he made his money. They talk about, oh, well, he was he was a great businessman. Okay, well, yeah. what business was he in? That's that context. Yeah, that's right. Left out. Exactly. Exactly. So it's just, it ignores all of these different, yeah. um, I guess, caveats, you could say. You know, it seems that people who are great businessmen always have these, like, really fantastic inheritances. And not to say that he didn't inherit it, but he was given foreign land. Yeah. To him by a government that didn't own it. Yeah. Similar to a small loan of a $10 million, but you know. Yeah, yeah it is a pretty small loan. It's a very small loan of $10 million. I mean, you know, context is everything. <laughs> you know, what is context? And so, you know, then it's like going into his time as president. And I, I got, it's so hard to, that's something I've ran into when looking at these presidents. There's so many different aspects to look at. Oh yeah. That you know, I could you could spend two hours talking about one person. I mean, you, you know, obviously you can write a whole book on one president. Yeah, right. 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 So yeah. I tried to uh, kind of whittle it down to certain themes and stuff like that. So yeah. um, you know, I looked at him being a wealthy landowning aristocrat. I looked at the issue of him with slavery, which is not talked about at all. Or if it is, it's talked about like he was the good master. He was the he he you know Which, what the fuck does that mean? Right. How can you be a good master? That's like I'm a really good heroin addict. Like I know being addicted to heroin is like a thing that's looked down upon. 
but I do it in a very good way. It's right. like, and it's, you're a good slave owner? Right. What the fuck is that? It's like, I'm a good murderer. Or yeah. I'm, like, I'm a good, you know, I'm, I'm a good kind. dictator. Yeah. You know? Oh, my God. Like, how... I'm kind in the way that I treat the humans that I own. Right. But. I mean, I don't give them, like, freedom or free will. But I also, you know, looked over the signing of the Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal. But, you know, eh. I mean, yeah. What's, what's. They all, all they, they, all, they all sign that with a shitty grin on their face. Exactly. You know, he talked about his desire to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. But every single... He looked... He was, you know, very influential in the Constitution, which codified slavery. Yeah. So if he really wanted to help end slavery, you that was your chance right there. Well, he's also a Southerner, too, because right. that was back when Virginia was considered the South. And as, as, as two people from Alabama... They're not the South. I feel like you're pushing it, Virginia. Right. I know a lot of Virginia is very Southern, but you're pushing it, is all I'm saying. Are they within the, what is it, the Mason-Dixon Oh, yeah, line? they are. They definitely are. And a lot of Virginia is is what you would see as Southern. But, like, I guess I guess it's the difference between being a Southerner and being from the Deep South. Right? Sure. Like, I guess being from the Deep South, I have a little bit of higher bar for Southern states. Like I saw one map that put Oklahoma in the South. I was like, you fuck off with that. <laughs> <laughs> I would give West Virginia Southern status, true Southern oh, status yeah. before West Virginia. I would give for sure. And West Virginia is like the South, like New Orleans, or like that's New Orleans, because that's what Louisiana is. And West Virginia is the South, like Louisiana is the South. Like, mm-hmm. They're the South, but they're not like us. <laughs> right. They're, oh, yeah. They're a special South. Oh, yeah. They're like a whole other category. We're proud to have them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why not? And I guess that's just, you know, these going back to the textbooks, it talked about how he was just he was so generous to his slaves and in his will, even though he did not leave them, let them be free in his lifetime. And yeah. actually, two of the main uh, slaves that I touched on with my students yeah. was Ona Judge and Hercules, mm-hmm. two of his slaves. One was one of the most famous, uh, well-known chefs in the uh, colonial United States. And then as uh, he was president and Ona Judge he and Martha uh, track, tried to track down once she escaped. So they spent like two years searching for her mm-hmm. after she escaped and never did find her. Good for her. But like that was his last act as a, you know, before he died. Yeah. And what was it, Trying 1799? Trying to track down a, an escaped yeah. slave. Like, God damn, you know, especially being president of the of the freest country on earth. I think he tracked down a slave who, who stole their freedom. Right. God, how God forbid them actually want to be free people. Because it's not like I don't have 313 other slaves, but I'm going to track down this one slave. Like, yeah. well, it's like when you drop a like a coin in between your your car seat and the middle console. Mm-hmm. You're, like, like you're trying to get it. I need it. This is so important. <laughs> it's like I need this one penny. But yeah. it's like, and then it. I read about how he and Martha, when they moved the capital from New York to Philadelphia. Yeah. He. Philadelphia, I guess Pennsylvania was technically a non-slaveholding state. Oh, so they actually there was really something there was something really interesting about Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and this was before. So this is not during uh, uh, Washington's time. This was in the build-up to the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know we hear all this bullshit about the Civil War, and this is about states' rights. Well, there was a perfect example of how that idea of the Civil mm-hmm. War is about states' rights is just utter bullshit. Because we had, you talked about the Constitution codifying slavery, right? We had the Fugitive Slave Act, one of mm-hmm. the first acts that we passed. Uh, and 
So Pennsylvania, the state of Pennsylvania decided that they would not pay their sheriffs if they spent their time finding fugitive slaves, mm -hmm. because what are we going to do? Because again, right, like you said, Pennsylvania is a free state. So we're going to pay our law enforcement officers to find runaway slaves to help people in Southern states. Like, fuck that. I want to pay my law enforcement officers to enforce the laws of our state. So we're not going to pay you if you do that. Uh, and the South lost their shit. And they made sure, actually, I think this was before the Fugitive Slave Act, actually. Uh, and that's why the Fugitive Slave Act was passed, maybe, is, is the reason why that happened. Because there was the one in 1850 and then the one in 1791 there you as go. well. Okay, there you go. So, right, so it must have been the 1851, right? So it was like, well, well, Pennsylvania is not doing their job in returning our slaves. And the citizens of Pennsylvania were like, well, we don't want to pay our law enforcement officers to do that for you. We want our law enforcement officers to enforce our laws. And so the Southern states were like, fuck that. You're going to bend to the power of the national government. But wait, states' rights. <laughs> exactly. States' rights. Exactly. It's only states' rights when it benefits them. Exactly. Which is why, like, I mean, come on. There's, and that's just one hole of many you could poke mm -hmm. in their argument. That I had an interesting discussion with a family member a few weeks ago about the Civil War. And they're on that mindset. Well, it's... It's, you know, they always have to bow up their chest and sound yeah. all strong. It's state rights. Yeah. And I, so I said, okay, well, we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, what was their favorite right that they <laughs> withdrew because of? What was their favorite And they right? go, slavery. And I'm like, okay, right there. It's yeah. because of slavery. I mean, it's in, I mean, it's just people who don't read, right? Like it's literally what South Carolina was the first state to secede. Read their, read their Confederate constitution. And then just shut up. Every single ordinance of secession said we yeah. are withdrawing because of our belief in white supremacy and yeah. the ability to own slaves. Yeah. I mean, it's just right. I, I understand that the giant hurdle there is reading. And like a lot <laughs> yeah. of people, that's what I tell my students all the time. Like literally all the knowledge in the world exists and it's all locked away in books. And that's why most people are fucking stupid. Mm -hmm. Just open up a goddamn book. And that's what it comes down to. And that's how people are so stupid because they don't. Yeah. It's almost like if we had the ability in our country to emphasize, you know, funding of education to teach people to read, or even once they're of working age to have that time to be able to read and not have to work three jobs to make ends meet. I don't know. It's like almost we could be more educated in this country. Yeah. Funding an education, funding an education could solve a lot of other uh problems right there's mm -hmm. it, right there's externalities with uh with underfunding of education and that's a we could talk about it in another podcast <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's another that's beer a for other, another day right yeah that's, there, a whole you know? other, that's a whole other deal uh but you know that's pretty much all i have on washington i just did like a brief overview of some main areas well, for him okay so if we want to talk about some of the positives of his legacy yeah i mean the fair and balanced right right fair and balanced because the thing is though like there are some things that he did that were important and did matter, right? Like mm -hmm. in his uh, in his uh, kind of farewell address about the problems uh, of political parties, and like holy shit, if that didn't ring true, especially right now, mm -hmm. like goddamn. Uh, also, you know, his reluctance to be president for a third term, you know, which everybody followed until FDR, mm -hmm. uh, then they then they finally codified it after that. Uh, which is kind of one of the scary things about Trump is that like, you know, before Trump, I think a lot of people didn't realize that a lot of, a lot, a lot of our government just acted on precedent mm -hmm. and not on actual written law. Uh, so like that was, that was 
I mean, that was really humble of him to do. I mean, because again, like he's not, we, when we talked about it, he's not running the show per se, right? Like he's delegating. Right. Why couldn't he have done that again and again and again? Uh, but, you know, he really believed in the vision they had. And so that was really cool. Oh, yeah. And that's one of the big things that I can respect is definitely the movement away from partisanship. The warning of the dangers of partisanship. I do find it kind of ironic that he then, right after saying that, went and backed uh, (laughs) Hamilton dealing with uh, the whether to have a big government or not. But yeah, well, you know, but to to be fair, I mean, like there, but you know, that whole debate between federalists and anti-federalists, like they're both right. Mm -hmm. We just have to make sure that we have a healthy balance. Uh, so like, I get it. It's important. Uh, but, um, you know, and I think that, you know, when you, when you're trying to figure out what is the legacy of a president, I think that it's, uh, you want to learn from their mistakes and you want to appreciate, uh, their successes. And you can't really say that they were like so much good or bad, except for some, you can say that they were really fucking bad. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't know, like one president you can pick out. They were like, wow, that guy was great. But there's a lot that you can figure out and be like, that one was shitty. <laughs> you can always find a redeeming quality with most. And then there's some that are just most. like, like, who is it? Uh, like uh, Buchanan, right before uh, Lincoln. Like, what the fuck did you do? Oh, Like, besides just show up and help instigate the leading up to slavery. Or Franklin Pierce. Like, yeah. what did you do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, or you're like, yeah. Like Zachary Taylor, right? Like, he, like, accomplished his goals now his goals were like fucked up mm-hmm. right all about uh imperialism and uh you know an imperialism obviously if you're, if you're an imperialist that you got a, a healthy uh a healthy uh helping of uh of racism in there right but he got his goals completed right like he took texas he got texas he, he fucking took texas and uh who was it william mckinley he he was one of the number one imperialist presidents dealing with like the spanish oh yeah war and all that oh kind of yeah stuff. man yeah taking over uh uh well the philippines we didn't take over cuba because congress made sure oh, that yes. we couldn't but like we didn't take over cuba the same way we didn't take over japan after the end of world mm-hmm. war Two. like yeah we don't we're not in control but just, we're but we are just like we don't have over 800 military bases all around the united yeah. or all around the world There's also you know? by the way that's when we that's when we uh took hawaii Mm-hmm. Uh, under McKinley, and mm-hmm. yeah, like you mentioned, the Philippines. Yeah, but you know, that's that's yeah. you know, what is it? Uh, as Milton Friedman said, that's trivial. That's trivial. <laughs> yeah, trivial. Well, yeah. Anywho, now our favorite person. This is the one that I really am enjoying just to get to get to destroy Woodrow Wilson. Oh man, this is what I have the most notes on. <laughs> and he was a character just to begin with. Oh my god, you know, Woodrow motherfucking Wilson. <laughs> and you know he's i come from humble beginnings and that didn't make any sense like you were the most elitist <laughs> president i think we For had real so yeah like the popular legacy of woodrow wilson was one that i was taught in school mm-hmm. and the reason that i saw him at that time in my life as one of the greatest presidents ever one of the most progressive is what i, used I mean to think. i revered woodrow wilson mm-hmm. i thought he was so amazing right he was a former university president of princeton and a historian like, how do you not love an academic? Mm-hmm. And especially for for us two, how do you not love an, a, a historian right. as president? He's like, fuck yeah, mm-hmm. this is awesome. You know, he like you mentioned, right? Progressive president. He was our first progressive era president. Uh, and he led us through World War One. There's a lot to appreciate. 
He helped us pass regulations to make life safer and and better in the United States. The Meat Inspection Act, you know, uh, the Pure Food and Drug Act, uh, both of which, you know, made sure that what we consumed was safe. Uh, the Hepburn Act, uh, which regulated railroads and pipelines. The Mann-Elkins Act, which regulated telephone and telegraph systems uh, under the uh, Interstate Commerce Commission. The Clayton Antitrust Act to curb uh, monopolies. The uh, Federal Trade Commission, again, to help curb monopolies. The Federal Reserve Act uh, to regulate the country's uh, money and banking system. And also under his presidency, we have states passing minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, safety standards, and worker compensation laws. Like, how do you not love this guy? And it's not just that, but he's also making, under his administration, they're making changes to the Constitution. When's the last time a fucking amendment happened? Like, that is a big mm -hmm. thing. Changes were made to the Constitution, which obviously has left its own legacy, uh, except for one. <laughs> so there was a 16th Amendment, which created the graduated income tax. Mm -hmm. We love that, right? Eat the rich. Uh, the 17th <laughs> Amendment uh, was passed, allowing finally direct election of senators, right? So making the country more democratic. Not just having the wealthy elites decide who they want to have in the state legislatures. Exactly. Or the state legislatures decide yeah, who deciding they want. who we yeah. want in Congress. Yeah. The 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Very progressive. But then the one that, like, yeah, totally doesn't matter. Uh, 18th Amendment, uh, which prohibited sale of alcohol. <laughs> we totally went back on that not too long after. But we think that we can regulate morality because drinking's wrong. Yeah. And then and then uh, it's something that I learned. I was talking to you about this before, before we started recording. Something that I learned about Wilson, because I also uh, teach government. So we're covering the legislative branch. And I decided mm -hmm. to read up more on the filibuster. So something I just learned about him uh, was that he helped curb the power of the Senate filibuster. So in March of 1917, Republican senators had filibustered uh, one of his proposals to arm merchant ships. And uh, we can talk about why his legacy was bad about these merchant ships here in a second. <laughs> but, uh, you know, merchant ships were being sunk by German U-boats. So he's like, we need to arm them, right, to protect them. He famously branded these Republican senators as, quote, a little group of willful men. Which, like, I'm sure it was, like, super shady back in 1917. Right. It kind of sounds like a little bit of a compliment. Uh, and he demanded that the Senate adopt a cloture rule. So we didn't have a cloture rule, which, if, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, when there's a Senate filibuster, the Senate, if 60 senators vote to end the debate and force a vote, that's what the cloture is. But if you don't have 60 senators to vote for it, then the filibuster remains. Uh, so Wilson and the Democrats qualified uh, the rule or, you know, the proposal of arming merchant ships as a matter of national security. And they used, uh, you know, Wilson used his bully pulpit. They used the press to successfully attack the senators on this issue. And eventually they got this cloture rule. You know, this is a time right now uh, in our modern uh, history where we're very upset about the filibuster. This is bullshit. Well, you know, it was completely unchecked until Wilson. Mm -hmm. So like. There's a lot to appreciate about him, but then we get into the fun stuff. Yeah, <laughs> for me, the fun stuff. And um, something else I want to make sure we hit on was uh, you were talking about how him being a historian, I, I made sure to highlight one of the books that he wrote. So we're going to get oh, into that. That's going to be this is not going to be a good book. It's going to be really I interesting. Presume. Oh no! I, it's, well, for him, it was great. He <laughs> yeah. thought it was great, but uh, for any decent human being, yeah. 
So uh, he was also, like we mentioned, he was the president of Princeton, which many buildings were named in his honor. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, they're trying to take his name off of yep. the public policy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> There's like five or six buildings literally that have his name on it. I that mean, when you have a former president mm -hmm. as your former president. He kind of, yeah. Yeah. He was the governor of New Jersey before running for president. He was a, not even a full term as governor of New Jersey before he decided to run. Wow. He was president from 1913 to 1921, which one of the most fascinating things was he had a stroke in yeah. 1919. Yeah, he did. And, and his wife was basically the president. She made all the decisions because he was incapable of yeah. even speaking yeah. most of the time. It was like a lie, right? Wasn't it? So I didn't read up on this, but it's what I, from what I remember. Uh, he is holed up in his room, mm -hmm. in, their, in their bedroom. And she is the basically liaison between mm -hmm. the president and everybody else. Uh, but what kind of state is Woodrow Wilson in? Right. Seems like his wife was probably running the country for the past two or for the last two years of his presidency. Oh yeah, and she he tried to run for a third term. Did you know that? I did not. Oh well, I guess it was legal back then. Yeah, no, he tried I, to run I didn't for. Know that. He tried to run for a third term because he felt that he was going to be able to heal, and then he. <laughs> ended up dying like two months after he tried to yeah. push uh this who was at the secretary of state to kind of you know get the drum up the support for him to run a third term yeah and he ended up dying so they were like well yeah yeah can't can't really do that yeah but uh you know he that's his really, wife could run oh, i mean she's, she's like, like did you like the last two years that was that all was me. me that was actually that was, me yeah <laughs> you like the treat you like the league of nations that was me yeah. but uh it's crazy it's crazy to think about and kind of leading into that his World War One in the League of Nations. Like growing up, I learned that he was just this idealist that wanted, you know, world peace. Yeah, he wanted to just bring about this new era of good feelings. Quote, quote, you know, like right. actual good feelings. Yeah, like this. The, so we learned about him the same way. And actually, I was talking, uh, I was talking to my partner Liz about this earlier today about, in particular, Woodrow Wilson, and she was like, "Yeah, I remember learning about him as being like this incredible president." Mm -hmm. Yeah. Except, like, you know, <laughs> yeah. the ways that he went about achieving it well, was uh, interesting. Questionable. But, uh, you know, dealing with the League of Nations and the way that he was able to be so popular during this time was that Espionage Act and the Sedition Act in 1918. Yep. yep. And that's just fascinating. I know you just finished teaching on it, so I, I do want to hear. You probably have more information. Yeah. Than this, so just me. real quick before we get into the shitty parts of his presidency, uh, there was also something that was really really great about him and, and the other progressive uh, progressives at the time. And actually something that, that, that bothers me a lot is that a lot of people on the right like to like to use these progressives, which by the way, now is, you know, a hundred and over a hundred years ago, mm -hmm. these progressives to link them to the, to modern day progressives. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just not the case. I mean, like it has, I don't know, like, do you also want to be lumped in like, like, you know, things change over time, right? Like, they're, they we're not, it's not the same. But I will say this, uh, he and the other progressives changed the way that many Americans viewed the role of the government. Uh, and they, they changed the role of the government to a view that I believe you and I and, and many other liberals uh, subscribe to uh, today. Uh, you know, they believe that social problems should be dealt with by a technocratic state, right? Like, I want an educator running the Department of Education. Crazy concept. You mean a billionaire that just gave millions of dollars to a campaign shouldn't be running the Secretary of Education? Exactly. And I can't remember the guy's name now, but uh, he looked like such a super nerd, which was 
exciting to see mm-hmm. under Obama's administration, the Department of Energy. I can't remember this guy, but he was like a nuclear physicist mm-hmm. running the Department of Energy. That makes sense. Instead of Rick fucking Perry, the guy who couldn't remember the three <laughs> uh, departments he wanted to get rid of on a presidential uh, on a debate of president on the stage of presidential debate. But uh, social problems should be dealt with with a technocratic state, not left to individual. So with this uh, technocratic state, right, they believe that economic progress uh, would be the byproduct of an administrative state. So here's the problem, right? Like this is this is where we start to see the disconnect between the progressives of today and these progressives. Technocratic states sound good, but the way that they saw it was a little bit where we see that transition from good to bad. Mm -hmm. So economic progress would be the product of an administrative state that overrode individual rights to ensure the public good. This idea of I know better than thou, right? And and you can see this, it kind of makes sense from his lofty position of this, of the president of Princeton, right? Like I am better than you. Uh, The government would provide uh, compulsory insurance against sickness, industrial accidents, stability and old age. Like, okay, that sounds good, right? But like, but your re- your rationale there is kind of fucked up. The Industrial Revolution uh, created a new economy, right? So, because, you know, it was the late 1800s that we went through this Industrial Revolution. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty obvious uh, that this massive ref- reformation of the economy required a massive reformation of the government, of government intervention. Gilded Age capitalists proved that they required continuous supervision, investigation, and regulation. And I believe you mean a that. rich person doesn't just have our best interest in their mind? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bessemer. Bessemer Amazon workers. <laughs> you know, look, uh, I hope you uh, get that union. So, uh, right, we we shared the same desired outcome, uh, but the problem with these progressives was that their vision of the process to get there was fucked up. The administrative state, as the progressives back then saw it, required government power to be consolidated, right? And I don't think that we believe that. I mean, I know I don't believe that. Progressive reformers saw the U.S. system of checks and balances as outmoded and leading the nation, uh, I'm sorry, leading to the negation of political science uh, by dividing power among the various parts of government. The government was slow and weak, but that was built into the design, right? Uh, Progressive reformers wanted to make changes for the people that they could not identify with, right? Because these are elites, they were the white knights. They saw themselves, uh, they saw the ordinary people as passive victims of economic change and that they would uh, be the selfless scholars to lead the people. They romanticized laborers and their experience, but would never consider joining them in their struggle, right? Uh, they wanted to help them from the outside. They didn't want to invite them into the room to make decisions. Uh, social control was central to the progressive goal of scientific management. Uh, and this is where we got to start to see some real fucked up shit. They saw the tradition of reverence for individual liberty as a radical defect of American thinking and identity. Like, what the fuck? This is super antithetical to what the mm-hmm. United States is supposed to be. It stood in the way of their belief that society shaped and made the individual and not the other way around. Uh, they did not believe that individuals uh, could have inalienable rights against the community that made and supports them. Like, Holy shit, dude. So they were just wanting to undo the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, essentially. Because people don't know how to run their own lives. And we know that. 
And like that's fucked up. And I don't think that liberals believe that at all. Uh, uh, progressives, but that's, but that's how they modern progressives, progressives in today. Exactly. To that back then. Yeah. yeah, I think modern day progressives are all about individual liberty. I don't understand why people on the right feel like they have the monopoly on individual liberty. Right. Like, when really they, at the end of the day, they rely on big government to instill it. I think know? I think that what progressives want to do is use the government to ensure individual liberty. How can you? How do you have individual liberty when you? as an immigrant or as a member of a mixed status family are afraid to go to the police or afraid to get access health care. Mm -hmm. You, you lack complete individual liberty, right? Like we would just want to, uh, put safeguards in place that allow you to live freely. I keep going back to every time you mention that the 1960s with Kennedy having to send the national guard in to integrate a fucking school. Yeah. Because these people that, which I love also, they think that we're so easily triggered by everything, but the thought of a person of color entering your school. George Wallace lost his shit. Lost, lose your shit and you start bombing shit yeah. because of the thought of someone of a different color sharing a water fountain or yeah. going to the same school as you. Or a classroom, right. Right. And so they had to have the federal government as a safeguard, a safety valve to ensure that liberties were uh, protected. Oh, and you know, an obvious, and that's what I'm saying. Like you learned that the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists are both right, and that's where the Federalists were. The Federalists were totally correct, man. Like sometimes the national government has to step in because states fuck up. Mm -hmm. yeah. Exactly. In serious ways. But it's very interesting, very mm -hmm. very interesting, and you know, it kind of goes back to what you're saying: is there is a healthy, good debate to have about the merits of a president and their mm -hmm. legacy. Yeah. And it's easy to see that literally for every single president. Yeah. And because, you know, while uh, Wilson was praised for many of his World War One, uh, I guess, the his roles. Won it. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the fact, yeah. They're like, we, we won the war we won, for the for the allies. Yeah, we won the war for the six months that we were in it. Yeah, like, so, but, so yeah, let's talk about World War One, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he got a lot of credit for that. And I gave him a lot of credit for that back when I was in grade school, mm -hmm. uh, high school. You know, uh, So Wilson pushed our country into a war that, by the way, a majority of the American public opposed. And he promised that the, he would not join he the war, ran, by the way. <laughs> yeah, in 1916, uh, yeah. or 17? His, his first uh, election. Well, no, yeah, no, his second oh, election. His second, yeah. his second election, I kept you out of the war. Mm -hmm. Vote for me again. I will continue to keep you out of the war. Well, an economic recession began in the United States the same year as the war started in Europe in 1914. Mm -hmm. And what's good for a stagnated economy? War. war. Yeah. Oh, crazy. Uh, so the war helps stimulate the U.S. economy, right? War is always good for business. America tacitly joins the war before forcefully joining the war. America was not fighting, but we were not neutral because it's a moving train, right? Uh, the future of the American economy became tied to an allied victory. American banks like J.P. Morgan and company began lending to allied nations. And guess what? Defeated nations do not pay interest. So we need them to win. Uh, Western allies outfitted their forces by placing large orders with the United States. England and France paid for their war orders by issuing bonds. We cannot cash those bonds if they lose the war. American investors had $2 billion riding on an allied victory. So the president wanted to protect American business interests. Uh, the Wilson administration wanted American control over foreign markets and investment. Uh, this is a quote from Woodrow Wilson. He said, concessions obtained by financiers must be safeguarded by the state. So like, hmm. where do his, uh, you know, where do his uh, goals lie? Yeah, yeah. Where his allegiances lie? 
Germany had announced that uh, their submarines would sink any ships bringing supplies to their enemies. That makes sense because it's a fucking war. Uh, then Wilson uh, used his economic interests to force involvement. So this is another quote from Wilson. He said, I cannot consent to any abridgment to travel on merchant ships in the war zone. We need freedom in the war zone. Right. We and It's like we need to be able to safely transport our supplies to our allies to help bomb you. But you should not bomb our yeah. uh, ships. So, right. How do you convince the American public who largely opposes the war to support the war and fight a war that really is for the interests of American business? Well, he worked to institute a draft. It was the first time we had the draft. Mm -hmm. uh, he began a propaganda campaign. And like you mentioned earlier about these... Uh, uh, espionage and sedition acts he punished any opposition censorship was central to an effective propaganda campaign it always is to convince the public to support the war and censorship uh, it was that censorship that bolstered uh, was bolstered by the espionage act uh, which passed by the way in june of 1917 same year that we joined the war not something the espionage act uh, uh created penalties up to 20 years for this is a quote from the espionage act who uh, whoever when the U.S. is at war, shall willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States, or shall willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service of the United States. So basically, if you speak out against the war, you're getting arrested up to 20 years. And I just want it known that literally we didn't plan this, but we chose the same quote. <laughs> let's, let's, let's just let it be known that we chose the same quote. To well, include. it's a pretty damning quote. It is. So it under is. that act, we imprisoned about 900 people. Uh, opposition was put out of sight and replaced with military bans and flags and war bonds and draft acquiescence. Uh, and then, uh, you know, one of our, you know, you joked earlier, the socialist department. I was just about to say. Uh, socialist leader Eugene Debs got 10 years for a speech. This is a quote from this speech. Tell me if you don't think that this is fucking amazing. Uh, tell us that we live in a great free republic, that our institutions are democratic, that we are a free and self-governing people. That is too much even for a joke. Wars throughout history have been waged for conquest and plunder, and that is war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. Mm. That got him 10 fucking years in prison. And he still got close to 2 million votes from prison yeah, when I he know. was running for president. You know, you got to be careful when you speak truth to power. It's crazy how that happens, you know? Yeah. You either get assassinated or you get imprisoned. So. Yeah, yeah. But it was fascinating for me, going back to the Lusitania, which was, you know, what I always learned. That and the Zimmerman telegram right. is what These brought us the Right, these are the reasons why we went right? to war. Yeah. So the Lusitania was this quote, quote, merchant ship. Oh, such a bullshit, yeah. And it was armed yes. with cannons, with... Uh, well, it was a, it was, so it was bullshit, right? Because, like, it was a, it was a passenger ship that had, uh, and I actually had this in my notes for my class, so I don't, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, I can't remember the numbers, but there were uh, war materials in the cargo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. While also having literal cannons lining the deck, from what so, I read. So, looks like a, mer looks like a, a, a passenger ship, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. right. so and it's like well and you know the germans didn't want to bring the united states into it which by the way is something interesting another interesting fact about the lusitania uh the british mm -hmm. uh knew that there were german u-boats mm -hmm. heading towards lusitania could have warned them could have sent ships to protect it but in a calculated decision they thought mm -hmm. if lusitania sunk there are americans on that ship 
we could probably force the United States to join the war. So England, our ally, decides to that, you know, we could lose the loss of these American lives could actually help us in the end. Mm -hmm. How fucked up is that? And it's it's like the whole World War One was just fucked up to begin with because oh, you know I mean war is fucked up. Well, yes, in general. Yeah. But like Germany gets all the blame for World War One when they only reason they went into the war was because an, a, an, an alliance. Yeah, an alliance with Austria, and they needed economic stimulation because they were going through a, a recession. But yeah. you know, war's good for business, right? And it's like they get the entire blame for it. Oh and, yeah. You know. Well, that, and that's what that was one of the reasons that World War Two happened. Mm -hmm. That's what they the, took all the blame. Help lead to the rise of Hitler exactly. at the same time. Exactly, it's mind Make Germany great again. <laughs> exactly. Which, speaking of, we're going to tie in MAGA later when we talk about Ronald Reagan. But oh, yeah. um, Haiti and self determination—that was one I loved. I really did a little, little bit of research in. Yeah. Uh, with Woodrow Wilson. So in 1915, he sent the U.S. military into Haiti to put down a rebellion of what he called "quote quote," and this is a textbook explanation of it. Um, prince, American principles were tested by the turmoil in Latin America. In the 1915, a revolt in Haiti prompted him to send Marines to protect American lives and investments, when really it was an uprising of the people that were tired of being, you know, forcibly controlled yeah. and having all of their resources extricated from there. Yeah. So it was a rebellion of the people, but like how history textbooks yeah. put it, you know, they have to you know, yeah. whitewash any movement of people. Well, the worst, the worst thing about Woodrow Wilson and what makes what, what really puts, you know, the biggest taint on his legacy is, uh, his beliefs in white supremacy. Right. And like, that, that's what I'm ready to talk about as soon as we get there. I was, that, that was actually my lead in that's to lead -in. white supremacy because he viewed them as being lesser than. Yeah. And you know, he, and this is what still leads to this, you know, oppression of Haiti today to this, uh, to yeah. the, to this present day yeah at the same time but yeah oh his, yeah right absolutely his views on race though this is this is like what i've been looking so, forward to right so this is the probably the starkest contrast between the progressives of the wilson era and the mm -hmm. progressives of today the progressives back then view right they had this view they had this belief in scientific management right this technocratic state right but scientific management was also applied to people as progressive reformers believe that human heredity could be made more efficient. What the fuck does that mean? Uh, so this would be done through eugenic regulation mm -hmm. to prevent the uh, prolongation of what we considered weak lives to conserve the racial stock. They believe that humanitarian impulses betray us into favoring the survival of the unfit and their perpetuation into the next generation, which who the fuck is the unfit and who gets to make that decision? Uh, progressive advancement needed human defectives to surrender control of their genetic resources to the state. So the methods of conserving hum human heredity involved involuntary sterilization or segregation in asylums. In 1907, the United States became the first country to pass a compulsory sterilization law. Over 60,000 American men and women were forcibly sterilized to prevent them from having children, which, by the way, as a you know, inspired the policies of Nazi Germany. Mark, Mark, land <laughs> right. of the free, home of the brave. You know, uh, there's a lot of sharing between the United States and Nazi Germany. <laughs> it's it's mind boggling. Yeah, some of this shit. Yeah, and I mean, even Wilson's views on race go even further back to his time growing up. I have a where was it right here? 
talking about how he was just kind of, uh, I don't want to jump into his defending of the clan because I know that's a little bit later on. Oh, no, I'm ready for it. But he wrote a book uh, right after, right when he was out of college, right after he got his doctorate called The History of the American People, which mm -hmm. looking at Wilson and his views on race, it's just wonderful. Mm -hmm. But he said the book was uh, sympathetic to the Ku Klux Klan, describing them as men half outlawed, denied the suffrage without hope of justice in the courts, which, you know, meant to take this means to well, make their get, will felt. You don't get but, hope of justice in courts if you never brought to court. Right. And it's just it's a quote from the book that was actually used in Birth of a Nation. So this oh, is a quote and Birth of a Nation even cut out some of it because it was so racist. Like even it was too birth racist of, for Birth of a Nation. I know that's that's like that's the a, quintessential racist film. That is a high bar to set. Yeah. So the white men of the South were aroused by the mere instinct of self-preservation to rid themselves by fair means or foul or foul of the intolerable intolerable burden of government sustained by the votes of ignorant Negroes and conducted in the interest of adventurers. That's what they called the North. Um. The policy of the congressional leaders wrought a veritable overthrow of civilization in the South in their determination to put the white South under the heel of the black South. I think there's one perfect comment for that. What's that? Roll Tide. I mean, literally, literally. <laughs> that is like every single Roll backward tide. hick explanation of why the South was so, right. Right. So it's not surprising that the KKK experienced a major revival uh, during this time, right? President mm -hmm. Wilson aligned himself uh, symbolically with the KKK by ordering a private screening of Birth of a Nation at the motherfucking White House. The first ever film shown at the White House. Right. Birth of a Nation. America, right there. Roll motherfucking time. And kind of going along with that, his in 1881, he wrote an article that I was mentioning on where he defended the South's suppression of black voters, where he said that they were being denied the vote not because their skin was dark, but because their minds were dark. That was his um, I wonder why, justification. Why, though? Why were their minds dark? I like, you got to ask, like, what's the explanation behind that? It's almost like every single time when asked to have evidence to back up some wild, outlandish example, they have none. Which is why our students do such a good job of growth in their reading and writing skills, mm -hmm. because we ask them for evidence. Picking out textual evidence. You got to find the motherfucking evidence. Mm. Otherwise, why the hell should I believe you? Exactly. Yeah. You know, the government, by the way, during this time, you know, trying to bolster this racist bullshit. Uh, the government turned a blind eye to the rebirth of the KKK in the South and to the escalation of violence against black people who fled to the North. Uh, instead of investigating illegal black suppression of votes, of black votes, sorry, in the South, uh, the Department of Justice instead investigated suspected illegal voting, black voting in the Midwest. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> How many, what was it, 19 instances of uh what is it voter fraud voter fraud right let's say no no no, hold up fuck the voter suppression that's not what's important because i heard that there's some illegal voting going on there's 19 that's gonna flip the vote right there holy shit god it's like almost like history keeps repeating itself if we don't you know actually acknowledge i the wish that, that it, maybe at some point in our life as a nation we can start to learn from our mistakes but that's a lot to ask of a human so to have you know, an entire uh, nation, yeah, to have the ability to critically think, it's That's like crazy. Tall order. And, you know, even going back to when this he resegregated the federal government 
Yeah. Because during Reconstruction, there was a lot of gains made in integrating the government. Right. And one huge example I found, which was just like mind-blowing, in April of 1913 at a cabinet meeting, they were talking about federal agencies and the Postmaster General, uh, who was Albert Burleson, argued for segregating the railway mail service. And he took exception to the fact that the workers shared glasses, God forbid, towels, and and washrooms. I'm clutching my pearls as we speak. But uh, Wilson offered no objection to the plan, and they took that as the authorization to resegregate the entire government. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was the white supremacist. What was he going to say? Right. And then Wilson went on to fire 15 out of the 17 federal service workers. Uh, he enabled the hiring discrimination of the federal government going forward by having pictures being forced to be included on all job applications. How the fuck can you compare these progressives to modern day progressives? But people like Ben Shapiro try and do it all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, he also takes offense to WAP, but you know. no, he well that's because he has he has no idea that his wife's his wife can be a WAP. He never knows what a WAP is. Yeah, so, you he's know. never he's never experienced a WAP. <laughs> Which that's a whole other episode in itself. I feel bad for him, but I ultimately feel bad for his wife. Mm-hmm. He, so Wilson was quoted as saying, segregation is not humiliating, but a benefit and ought to be so regarded as such. Hmm. So that gives you every idea of yeah. what he stood for right there. Well, you know, this is the thing, right? And like, this is so a comparison to, to the Trump administration and the legacy of Trump. When you have a president in office who legitimizes uh oppressive or racist is or xenophobic or all these views then you're going to have a public that reacts to it that that feels legitimized right with these beliefs uh excuse me there were anti-black riots that were done out of fear of black power in politics and economics and just in society in general race riots were organized by white people in chicago philadelphia charleston dc and all around the nation the red summer of 1919 happened mm-hmm. during the Wilson administration. And that was not about communism. And by the way, some of it was a lot of it wasn't just in 1919, right? The the East uh, the East St. Louis race riot of 1917 was aimed at keeping black people from moving up the social ladder. The Western Orange County, Florida massacre of 1920 was meant to suppress the black vote. The Tulsa race riot of 1921 destroyed one of the most successful black business districts in the nation. Uh, this is a quote from uh, a black Tulsa business owner. She said, uh, at the time of the race riot, we had 10 different business places for rent. Today, I pay rent. So a huge shift in, again, that economic and that social power. Mm-hmm. Black sharecroppers who organized a union in the Arkansas in the Arkansas Delta in 1919 were met by a violent attack from a white mob. The Elaine massacre in Arkansas saw the murder of many black workers at the cost of co- uh, and the cost of cotton wages go down because they were demanding more wages, higher wages, a livable wage. God uh, forbid. I know. Uh, a group of black farmers in Longview, Texas, form a, formed a cooperative to bargain for better prices and marketing for their goods, which resulted uh, in an attack by a white mob that led to the deaths of many in the black community. Black landowners in Florida were subjected to a campaign of violence that coincided with a land boom in the state. So what's the motive there? Obviously, they're trying to get that that sweet, sweet uh, uh, land when, when land prices are rising. In 1919, these riots resulted in 11 black men burned at the stake and 69 lynched by white mobs. 
10 of which, by the way, of these lynched black men were World War I veterans. These race riots were acts of genocide that allowed, that allowed white developers to take control of black property for a drastically reduced price or nothing at all. So white racial terrorists were given essentially universal immunity from prosecution. Black victims uh, of these terrorist acts were incarcerated for defending their homes and their neighborhoods. That doesn't happen unless a president tacitly or uh, explicitly endorses it. Exactly. And one of the ones that really hits home that I learned about recently was the Forsyth County in Georgia in 1913, where literally talking about if you mentioned land booms and it made me think of it, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, I think the population percentage in Georgia or in that County was right at about 42% uh, African-American and they were wealthy because it's about an hour North of Atlanta mm -hmm. and they were, they were gaining wealth because of all the land that they had. It was the, there was a boom in land prices Yeah, and the white people of the County decided they wanted it. Yep. So they literally it's rightfully theirs, right? Cause exactly. they earned the land. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know. We'll, it's figure, almost it. we'll like, figure it out. It's almost like they had the something, I don't know, what is it called? A caucasity? To think the that caucasity. they had the caucasity. I think it was the manifest destiny of it mm. all. Something yeah. along those lines. Yeah. And they literally forced a mass exodus of African Americans from that uh, county to where the population dropped to less than 1% in a matter of six months. Well, yeah, I mean, like, what the hell do you think happened to Tulsa, dude? Like, yeah. those black families living in Tulsa were like, well, obviously, we have to leave because of these racial motherfucking terrorists. Mm -hmm. Like, that was the Great Migration. The Great Migration was six million black families mm -hmm. not, not moving to the north for a better life fleeing mm -hmm. the south because of racial terrorism you know uh and this is this kind of ties in well with under, just understanding immigration because this is not immigration necessarily it's migration within a country but there are both push and pull factors right so we think that people want to come to the united states because of pull factors mm -hmm. because we have good jobs we have good benefits they want to come here right but there are push factors that push people out the racial terrorism in the South was a push factor. Yes, there were jobs in the North, and and this was also during a time when World War, War, War One was happening. So there were more jobs as people were being shipped off to war, uh, factory jobs. But it's more about the push factors, dude. Like, same with people leaving Central and South America. It's the push factors. And people want to, I don't know, they don't want to ignore it. It's just that people are ignorant. It is. And then those who know about it, they want to ignore it because that would threaten their hold on power. Yeah. And I do want to say just quickly though, like, cause I feel like oftentimes when people hear the word ignorant, they hear it as a, as a uh, insult. Yeah. And this is something that I make sure to make a point to my students. Ignorant mm -hmm. just means you don't know. I am ignorant about how to fix my car. Mm -hmm. I'm ignorant as hell. Whenever my car messes up, I have to take it to someone who is much more knowledgeable than me. Cause I don't know jack shit. Mm -hmm. Ignorant doesn't mean it's not a fault. You can fix your ignorance. Ignorance isn't a problem. But we're ignorant about everything. What are you supposed to do? Know everything? It's impossible. And to me, there's a big difference between ignorance and willful. Ignorance. Willful ignorance, yes. There's willful Absolutely. ignorance. Absolutely. And that's right. willfully, you know that there's something going on and you turn your head because you do not, I just don't want to be involved. No, or right. I just, it just, it doesn't affect me. Right. So I'm turning my head. Right. Huge difference. That's the white liberal problem. Mm-hmm. What is that? Uh, Malcolm X said that uh, the biggest threat to... Uh, progress in society is the white liberal 
Yeah. It was either him. Yeah. I think he's I mean, like, you know, he's just like when that's the thing we talk about too, like when life is comfortable enough. Like that's the whole thing, right? This uh this divide and conquer bullshit, right? Mm-hmm. If we can create a middle class that is comfortable with the status quo and the middle class that is that is vulnerable to changes in the status quo, then they will do whatever they can to maintain it. I mean, look what happened in the 2008 market recession, right? You had middle-class people all of a sudden homeless, right? You have middle-class people losing everything. So middle-class people, if they're given enough of the pie, will do whatever they can to maintain that, uh, that status quo. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. So this is going to wrap up the first part of our two-part discussion with Barakon Seiger, my co-worker. So make sure to check in next week where we will finish up our long-awaited discussion. And yeah, so I hope you enjoyed it and make sure to tune in next week. We will put out this next midweek episode where we have part two.